semester at Oakwood College before it was Oakwood University. Owed more money than I had. Just doing the Lord's work. I knew somebody who knew somebody in financial aid. Called me out of the blue. I said, keep me on your mind just in case some money comes up. A scholarship from Tom Joyner just so happened to pop up. And he called me when I was in Atlanta at Youth Congress and he said, Joe, I got some money for you. And I said, I didn't apply for any money. He said, but I got some money for you. It got your name on it. Last week before graduation, needed American literature to graduate. Last general ed completion. I didn't study that much for American Lit. I, I read an, 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 the anthology of every work from the 1700s up until now, went to, went to test out of the exam. None of the questions that I studied was on the exam. Holy Ghost gave me answers to questions I didn't even study for, and I got a 46. I needed a 50, y'all. I, I, I appealed to the academic of, of um, the vice president of academic affairs. She said, you need to go to the English department. And I said, Lord, I know you didn't bring me all the way here to Oakwood College. I just spent four and a half years here to leave me now. I go to Dr. Bo and he says, what do you need, son? I try to flatter him. I said, I noticed you got some Bibles on your show. He said, Joe, what do you need? And I said, I, I, need, that, I need 46. I, I need you to advocate for me at the academic policy meeting. You see, all of the other chairs, they, they look down at theology majors because they didn't do their work all of the time. People would come up upon the last day before the end of school and they would want to, to get 30 credits to graduate because they're sponsored and they need to go to Andrews. And I, he, said, he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I'm a minister, sir. I said, he said, what's your GPA? And I told him what it was. And, and he said, I will advocate for you. And on the, about three days before graduation, I get a call from the VP. And he said, your, your name has gone through. And as soon as my name went through, I immediately rejoiced and praised God. God worked some other things out so I could graduate from a private Christian school. And I'm so glad because I've been in every type of education, public, private, special ed, but there was no place for me. Better than Oakwood College. Amen. Father in heaven, you will indeed make a way out of nowhere. Sometimes you put us in places just so you can make a way. You will send us to the edge of the sea with, with the Egyptians behind us, crying out to you, wondering why did you lead us in this direction? It's so you can make a way. Father, the difficulties that we face, we, we don't see them. We don't see how you're going to give us the solution. But Lord, we believe that the solution comes before the problem. Father, we ask you to make a way this morning. Creating us a new place for your son, Jesus Christ. As we open up your word. In your son's name we do pray. Amen. A friend of mine, when he was two years old, he had a traumatic, a traumatic experience that no two-year-old should ever have. It was the day he was supposed to meet his father for the first time. He came from a single-parent home. And his mother told him that the next man that walks up to the house is going to be your father. So as a two-year-old would do, he, he, he goes to the front porch looking for his father. The first man he's told by his mother is going to be his what? Oh. His father. 
first man walks up to the, to the fence. And the, the young boy says, are you my daddy? And, 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 the, and the brother looked at him and said, no. And, and, and the two-year-old was confused because his mother said that the first man who was to walk up to the house was going to be his father. Next man walked up and, and he ran to the gate and said, are you my daddy? And, and, and the man looked at him and said, not that I know of. And the man walked on. And the young two-year-old was confused because his mother told him that the next boy, the next man he would see would be his father. Man after man walked by. And my friend asked each man, are you my daddy? And each man said no. And when the sun went down, he realized that his father was not coming. He asked each person, are you my daddy? And, and his father never came. And from that day to this one, his, his father could never correct that first impression that was lacking in the young boy's life. He, he had a wrong relationship with his father, and it screwed him up for life. And because of that, he had a wrong relationship with everything else. God made fathers to, to give love to their children. And when his father failed to give him love, he tried substitutes. He, he tried school. He, he tried marriage. While he was married, he tried affairs. But none of it would work. The need for his father wasn't filled, and it led for him to settling for cheap store brand substitutes. And I submit to you that we are the exact same way. Augustine, the church father, said in his confessions, O oh Lord, you awaken us to delight in your praise. O oh Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We are made with this God-shaped emptiness, and we need God to fill it. And we're going to see how exactly he does it in this message entitled, The Center of My Joy. The Center of My Joy. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 6. Genesis 6, where we had our scripture reading. And I'll be reading verses 6 to 8. Verses 6 to 8. If you don't have your Bibles, it's also on the screen. And I'm reading from the New International Version of the Bible. And the Bible says the Lord was grieved that he had made men on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the year, for I am grieved that I have made them. But verse eight says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm glad to have insurance. Growing up, I didn't have insurance, but now I have life insurance. Just in case I get into an accident, my family won't have to come out of their pocket to bury me or take care of my affairs. I have life insurance. I'm an adult, so I don't drive illegally anymore, so I also have car insurance. Amen. To cover injuries to my person and, and other people's property, I have car insurance for liability purposes. And pretty soon I'll have one for collision. Insurance. I work at a hospital, so I, of course I have health insurance. Just in case I need to go to the hospital or an outpatient clinic for a medical need that I have, I have insurance. I pay my copay when I need to get the medical attention that I desire. I, I submit for your consideration, your proposal, and your preponderance that God also has insurance. Amen. What, what, what are you talking about? 
after man sins, God's insurance plan is activated. He, he pays the copay, the premium, and the claim and the sacrifice of a lamb. This is to show God's abundant grace. God's insurance plan of salvation shows us that sin does not catch God by surprise. See, you have insurance before the problem comes up. So God's solution comes before man's fall. Everyone who hears Adam's voice and listens to him, they learn to trust God's grace and they find the secret to true security. That before I know God, God knows me. That before I love him, he loves me. Before I know what I need, he provides everything that I need. God's supply is before my sin. God's provision is before my problem. I said God has an insurance plan. The sacrifice of the lamb is to show that before sin enters the world, God has already made a remedy for it. Revelation 13, 8 says that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. God's people learn to trust him more than they trust themselves. That means that I don't have to provide for myself because God has provided everything for me. I don't have to struggle to make ends meet because God is my end. All right. I don't have to look for happiness in dead end streets because God is all that I need. He is my portion and him will I trust. When you understand that God is all that you need, the joy of the Lord becomes your strength and the strength of the Lord becomes your joy. But in the course of time, Genesis 6-1 declares that human beings began to increase. They had a population explosion and the Bible says that daughters are born to them. For nine generations, the presence of Adam restrains evil. The Garden of Eden is still on the earth. To show God's original plan. There's no need for Christian education at this point because men still have sharp minds and sharp intellects. They cannot say that they don't believe because there is no proof. There's no room for reasonable doubt. Enoch preaches for 300 years that that submission to God is the only way to find true joy. But in the course of time. Something interesting happens after Adam dies and Enoch goes to heaven. All of a sudden, there's no restraints on evil. Years pass and some of the men of God get restless. Verse two says that the sons of God sees the daughters of men and they see that they are beautiful. They see that the grass on the other side looks greener. So the Bible says that they take away wives, anyone that they choose. You know, at first glance, it seems as though nothing's wrong. They, they got children, they, they got jobs, they got homes. They, they, they're, they're getting married. Well, what's wrong with the picture? When we look at it through our eyes, we don't see anything wrong. Our natural question is, what's wrong with God? Maybe, maybe it's just me. Doesn't he want me to be happy? I'm a single man. I see these women. They're they're beautiful. I like them. I choose them. Let me get what I want. Isn't God the one to bless the institution of marriage? When when he said that man should not be alone, I will make a, a helper suitable for him. Isn't God a lover of beauty? He made the world in six days, and when he saw it, he says it was beautiful. It was very good. 
Isn't God the one to give the declaration to man that you should have dominion over the earth to be fruitful and multiply? What is God's problem? What's the problem with dating and beauty and marriage and children? Nothing at all. <coughs> marriage is good if you're married. Children are good. Beauty is good. But they are not ends in and of themselves. The issue is when we do it without God. It got to the place where they were choosing any women that they saw. They failed because they were trying to fulfill a God-given need, but they were trying to do it without God. They had the wrong starting point. It wasn't what they were doing was bad. They had the wrong starting point. I don't know about you, but maybe I'm the same way. I tried to fulfill my God-given needs without God sometimes. I tried education. That, that, that didn't work. I tried relationships. That, that didn't work. Then I came to church and tried religion. And I, I thought that if I could get the pretty girl, and my, and my brother thought that if he could get the right woman, then he could be happy. But how many of you know that two broken people don't equal one whole person? Whenever we try to live apart from God, we don't find joy. We actually end up fighting him who's the source of our joy. Verse 3 says that the Lord says, my spirit will not contend with man. God, it puts a restlessness in our hearts. And when we go away from him, he has to fight us. The starting point is wrong. We can never find happiness when we're not focused on the goodness of God. The wrong starting point. Just yesterday when I was coming from the, the weight room, I stopped by Rouse's and bought two boxes of Lucky Charms. Buy one, get one free. 18 ounce boxes. I like me some Lucky Charms. When I was younger, I didn't have money, so I, I would always ask my mother to get me the Lucky Charms, but she said, no, you're going to get cornflakes. I don't like cornflakes, but I ate cornflakes. But when I got older and, you know, got, got a job, I, I began to buy cereal, and I always would buy Lucky Charms. I was attracted to, to the leprechaun on the front. He was green. He, he, he was short. And he was always mischievous, just like me. He promised gold and riches to anyone who could catch him, but that was the trick. You, you had to catch him. That the brother was mischievous. If you caught him while he had the gold in the pot, the, the gold was yours. Sometimes he, he would, you would try to catch him and he would just vanish. And the legend says that he would hide his gold, his pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. And you, you, you think that you can outsmart him. So when you see a rainbow, you go chasing after it. And you see this glimmer of gold at the end of the rainbow and you see the leprechaun sitting on top. And if you can catch him right then, you, you might not get any lucky charms, but you have a good golden parachute for retirement. But see, when, when, when you walk up to the leprechaun, all of a sudden, the gold disappears and he's just there laughing at you. You, you, you spent all of this time walking when you, when you could have been out looking for a job. And when you see the leprechaun and you walk up, you want to wring his neck. And the leprechaun tells you the truth. I never intended to give you my gold. And he said, don't go chasing waterfalls. Stick to the rivers and lakes you're used to. Why are you chasing me? You have the wrong starting point. Satan distracts us. 
into thinking that we can find joy without God. And, and when we take our eyes off of him, everything fails. We start from the wrong place. Here it is. Even if we do good things, they'll fail. We can't even accomplish successes the right way without him. We can't even have the good things and gifts from God without him. Ecclesiastes 1, 25 and 26 says, For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Genesis 6, 4 continues and says that there are giants on the earth in those days. And afterward, when the sons of God, they go back and do the same thing again. That they see the daughters of men and now they bear children. This time that they are, they are mighty men, men who are famous, men who, are, who has a reputation. Ladies, have you ever heard of 666? All right. A man who's six feet tall, who has a six-figure income, who has six years of higher education. That kind of man that they say is successful. I won't mention what kind of woman that a man thinks is successful. I'll just say that these men broke the 80-20 rule. They, they, these men are unhappy in their relationship and God tries to stop them. They have everything going on. They have six years of education. They, they are, they're over six feet tall and they have all of these good things going for them, but they have the wrong starting point. And because they're all screwed up, God tries to stop them and they try to use more broken relationships to cover up for more broken relationships. They keep on focusing on the 20 when God wants to be their 100. And they keep on repeating their self-centered behavior, expecting it to bring happiness. Notice something. When you look at the text from the outside, they look successful. They're tall and they're handsome. They have fame and fortune and everybody knows their name. But none of it matters because none of it brings happiness. When you try to find happiness outside of God, you end up manipulating people. And leading yourself further into sin. Verse 5 and 6 says, When the Lord sees that the man's wickedness on the earth had become, and every inclination of his heart was evil all the time, the Lord is grieved and his heart is filled with pain. They're partying and they're doing drugs and they're having unprotected sex. It was like a big reality show. Like, like Jersey Shore in New Orleans or Keeping Up with the Kardashians. They look good, they are attractive, and they are successful, but none of it brings happiness. I bet you Kim Kardashian's wedding, her marriage won't last more than six months. That, that, that's, that's another song. When God first looks at creation, he sees beauty and he says it's very good. But now he looks at the same creation and his heart is filled with pain. When we live self-centered lives, we don't just hurt ourselves, we hurt God. If, if I had time to preach, I'd tell you that there's no such thing as victimless crime. If I had time, I would tell you that the only thing that can fill the God-shaped void in your life is the one who put it there. The reason is we try to fix ourselves because we don't understand our hearts. And when we see our hearts, we think that God will condemn us. We see people, well... Some of us see people walking up and down Bourbon Street, walking up to the club saying, will you take away my God-shaped emptiness? Along, we're asking these broken cisterns. If you've ever been down there, you see 
all of these broken people who walk up to these strange men and women and say, can, can you feel the ache that I have in my soul? Asking the women to feel a hole that God put there, like Luther said, if only for just one night. But what do you do when the night is over and you have to wake up to the same life that you had the day before? We, we hear God saying in the morning, standing there with the echoes of sobriety in Jeremiah 2.5 saying, What thought did your ancestors find with me? That they strayed so far away from me. That they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. What fault is there with me, God is saying. I often say that the woman with the issue of blood had an internal GPS that moved with Jesus every time he moved. But I submit to you this morning that when we find ourselves in places like this, not only do we have a GPS inside of us, but God has a GPS inside of him. That says every time we go looking after other gods, his, his GPS is recalculating, saying, I have a plan to save you. I have to come up with a new plan to find you and bring you back home. When we get to the bottom, we have to understand something. Because when we get at the bottom and we begin suffering the consequences of our actions or we're awaiting news of the consequence of our actions, we, we begin to... We begin to confuse guilt and shame. All right. When we get to the bottom, we confuse guilt with shame and we go into a cycle of self-hatred. Guilt is what I do, is my behavior, is how I act. But shame is something internal. We think that it's about who we are. We are guilty. We're not shameful. But what, what, what are you talking about? When a man or woman is at the bottom... They might have an evil heart. They might have evil thoughts. They, they might have evil behavior, but they are not evil. All right, let me explain. When, when you're at the bottom, something happens. One, one pastoral theologian, Seward Hiltner, he says, that which is central and crucial about the person, the, the, the total spirit, is always larger and deeper than the negativities that may adhere to him or her. Whatever the demons may be, they are not all of them. But what, what are you talking about? This means that the wickedness inside of me is lesser than the grace that's coming to me. The grace that's coming to me is greater than the sin in me. The healing power of God's spirit is greater than the addictions inside of you. The humanity of a man is always bigger than the demons of a man. The problems I have are lesser than the potential inside of me. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, I might be a great sinner, but, but Jesus is a great savior. That, that's, that's the wrong neighbor. Turn to the other neighbor and say, I might be sinful, but I have potential. Look at what I can do when I'm sinful and on the bottom. That's why I think that God let Noah preach for 120 years. They saw what they could do without God. What do you think that they could do with God? Let, let, let me press my case some more. Jesus goes across the lake to see a man possessed by demons. Plural. And Jesus said, what's your name? Well, what's your demon? Jesus is not talking to the man. He's talking to the demon inside of the man. 
Jesus has to come and speak to the issue and deal with the issue before the real man can be helped. Jesus doesn't talk to you. He talks to your demon. And the demon says, my name is Legion, for we, we are many. A legion is normally thought of as a, as a group of a thousand Roman soldiers. So we think that, that, that the man was possessed by a thousand demons. But a legion based upon history could be between 7,000 and 50,000 demons. Between 7,000 and 50,000 demons. So if a man's total person is greater than the demons inside of him, then what does it say of his potential? When the disciples were running away, Jesus stood right there on the shore. He wasn't afraid of the demons because Jesus knew. That if he could ever get inside of the man, the darkness might be greater than the light now. I might look like Samson now, blind, bald, without strength and without vision, shackled by a heavy burden beneath the load of guilt and shame. But when the hand of Jesus touches you, you will no longer be the same. You might be slumbering around in the gutter grinding corn or cutting yourself like this man. Living among the dead. But all of the demons inside of me will not compare to what happens when Jesus gets in me. That's why Jesus said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is walking in the middle of the golden candlesticks with the churches in his hand. Then he gets kicked out of the church in Revelation 3 and he's outside knocking trying to get in. He's knocking, trying to get in, and John wonders, how can the church abandon its Lord? When Revelation 4 pops up, he sees 24 elders. Jesus is outside of the church in, in Revelation 3, and John is hopeless, thinking that no one can get to heaven. And in Revelation 4, he sees 24 elders sitting around the throne, and it sparks questions in his mind. And he begins asking the question in Revelation 5, who is worthy? In Revelation 6, he says, who shall be able to stand all of this? In Revelation 7, John sees 144,000 standing on a mountain. And the angel says, these are they that came out of the great tribulation. The entire world is wondering after the beast. And it seems that greater is he that is in the world than he that is in the church. But at the end of Revelation 7, when John sees a number that no man can number... He declares that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The world is accustomed to darkness, the demons and despair inside of you. But my potential in life is greater than my demon. That's why Jesus said, let me cast out the 50,000 demons. And you'll see what I can do in your life. That's why verse 8 makes sense. When it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Some place says favor. This is the first place where the word grace is used in the Bible. And whenever the word is used, it's always given to someone who doesn't deserve it. The King James Version says grace. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah didn't find grace. Grace found him. Noah was chosen by God before he knew God even existed. Before he did anything, before he preached, before he had children, Noah found grace. 
understand something else. Noah was a Sabbath keeper. Uh oh. He was a vegetarian. He saw angels. His family was Adventist, but he still needed grace. When grace comes to Noah, it is unearned and undeserved. Noah didn't have a right to claim God's grace. It was based upon God's own choice. If we want to be saved from our sin and make God the center of our joy, what we need is grace. It means that God looks beyond your faults and sees your needs. It means that when you are at your worst, God is at his best. When you deserve nothing, have nothing, expect nothing, God shows up and gives you everything. When you have nothing to offer, nothing to defend, when you're down to your last nerve and you hate yourself and your life, God shows up and gives you grace. And he tells you that greater is he that is in you. It's because of grace. That, see, it's when we're at the bottom is when grace comes to us. And when grace comes to us, we, we wonder why. It, it, it made me think about 9-11. I, I was at Oakwood at the time. And I remember walking into the library when, when I saw the planes hitting the, hitting the tower. And I'm like, I have family there. I have friends there. This is, reality show wasn't that big back then. And I, and I thought it was a movie. And when I, when I saw the ashes and, and all of the things coming down, what I saw next unnerved me. I saw people running away. But I also saw people running towards the building. I saw ambulances and, and, and police cars. But when I saw the fireman running into a building that is exploding and falling... I'm wondering what is it inside of the firefighter that gives him a courage where he can run in a building when everybody else is running out. And 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 one of my good friends in Alabama, he's a firefighter, and he says, Joe, it comes with the job. It's a part of my job description. When everybody else is running out, I will run in. That's my job description. I'm a firefighter. You see... When you ask a logical question, the answer is emotional. The answer is super logical. When firefighters walk into a burning building, they come in and get you out because that's who they are. They're just, they're just acting in accordance with their nature. Everyone else is running away, but they're running too. That's what Jesus did with me. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. And when I didn't want God come to come to me, he came to me and lifted me up and says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says that because of his great love for me, not because of anything I have done, but God who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ when we were dead in transgressions and sins. By grace you have been saved. To make God the center of your joy, what you need is grace. You need him to come find you. We celebrate God's grace. And I declare to you that God's grace that's available to you is greater than the sin that's inside of you. But you're so accustomed to sin. Verse 6 says that every inclination of the heart, the fountain from which our emotions and our behavior comes, is faulty. 
And when I see God's grace coming to me, I'm afraid of it and I don't trust it. Because the sin inside of me takes up so much. It's the 80% or it might be 95%. And all I have left is just a little bit. But God comes to me and says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. See, I'm trying to use logical math. Saying, God, if you occupy 1% of my being, how would that deal with my sin? God doesn't need all of you. He just needs a part of you. He just needs that one willing part. And when he gets inside of you the faith of a mustard seed, it will produce fruit that will drive out the sin in your life. But he has to deal with the sin first. Verse 12 to 14 says, when God sees how corrupt and violent the earth has become, God says to know I'm going to put an end to all of it. The earth is filled with violence because of them. He says, so make of yourself an ark of cypress wood. And I'm going to save you and your family. Noah preaches for 120 years. He preaches a message of judgment and mercy. He preached the same sermon every day. Uh, He says that there is mercy and salvation, but only in one way. He says, you can be saved if you get in the boat. Stop looking at the boat. Stop calling reporters asking about the boat. Don't don't just donate money to help build the boat. You have to get in the boat. The boat is big enough. The boat is strong enough. He says that there is plenty room in my father's house. Noah preaches, but it falls on deaf ears. And when God called him and his family to get in the ark in Genesis 7-1, Genesis 6 says the Lord shut them in. And after seven days. The rain begins to fall. And all of a sudden, everybody wants on board then. They all run to the ark and cry, let us in, let us in. Noah wanted to open the door, but Noah didn't shut the door. Noah was a passenger by grace, just like the animals. The ark is just one vessel of safety, but I said greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The one inside of you is inside of the ark. So you better get in the ark to avoid judgment. It's not how much you got. It's who you got. And the one who you got is on the ark. We we, we know the story. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights. Satan thought he was going to die in the flood. But Noah and his family is safe. The ark didn't save Noah. God preserved Noah. God deals with the sin problem. He destroys sin and saves eight people. But something we miss is that the world after the flood is the same before the flood. Uh Uh-oh. Noah got drunk after the flood. He cursed his family after the flood. And the Bible declares in Genesis 8.21 that the thoughts of their hearts are evil from their childhood. God gives the same verdict upon good people as he does evil people before the flood. Noah wasn't perfect after all. So reason with me. God's solution to the sin problem cannot be judgment. It can't be punishment. Because the fear of the flood will not change your heart. Uh, God has to find another way to save you 
while at the same time preserving his justice. The judgment upon sin was total, but the redemption of man also has to be total. It wouldn't be Noah that would bring the solution, but 52 generations later, another person greater than Noah would be born that would convince man that he would want to be the center of their joy. God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something. I'm going to take something that you've never seen, never heard of. If you had an entire life, you couldn't imagine it or think it of. In the fullness of time, Jesus is born to, to make right what Noah made wrong and to take Noah's place. At this time, Noah was the best we had. And he was just as sinful as the people who died in the flood. Jesus came to show that salvation doesn't come through judgment. But it comes through grace and love. Jesus invites us to make him the center of our joy in Matthew 11. When he says, come on to me, all ye who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You've been looking for happiness in these women, and in, the, in these children, and in your job. But come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, Jesus knows that we are restless. He, he knows that our hearts are full of wickedness. And we want him, but we're afraid because of our darkness. When he comes to us, he does the exact opposite of what he, we expect him to do. He came and he gave water to the thirsty. He gave bread to the hungry. He gave sight to the blind. He gives for free what people try to buy. And when we curse him, he continues on giving us grace even though we are wicked. He gave his robes to those who laughed at him. He gave his hands to those who nailed him. He gave his feet to those who pierced him. And he gave his life for self-centered people who could care less about him. And our response to Jesus was the same response of the people to Noah. The record says that he came unto his own and his own didn't receive him. He came preaching peace, but we called him a Samaritan. He came working miracles, but we called him a demon. How are you going to call God a demon? He came to save and we turned our backs on him. And when we turned our backs on him, would God do the same thing that he does in Genesis 6? Jesus already knows that we cannot be saved by fear, so he does it in some other way. To get our attention, he takes God's judgment that's greater than a flood, and he does it in the form of the cross. Jesus isn't martyr. He's not martyr. He's not a victim. Jesus isn't overpowered or outsmarted. Jesus willingly gave up his life for self-centered people who rejected him. And the Bible says something astounding in Isaiah 53. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. But the Bible says that the Lord laid upon him the iniquities of us all. What? The Lord laid upon him the iniquities of us all. It goes on to say that he was oppressed and afflicted. Yet the brother didn't open his mouth. 
He didn't preach any sermons like Noah, but he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. For the transgressions of his people, he was stricken. And the Bible says something in verse 10 that knocks my socks off. The Bible says that it pleased the Lord to do it. It pleased God to bruise him. Some translations say it was the God, it was God's will that Jesus might die and put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord will be in his hand. My servant will justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Through the death of the cross, Jesus takes our punishment. That's the flood multiplied by infinity. And it fills God with joy to do it. But Jesus was a willing participant. Hebrews 12 says that, that Jesus for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross and despised the shame, the shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. So, so reason with me. If it, if, it, if it fills God the Father with pleasure to give his son. And if it fills Jesus with joy to die for you and for me, yes. while we are powerless, while we are sinners, Man. what darkness is there in you that he can't handle? And while Jesus was dying on the cross, he, he declared those prophetic words, it is finished. When he, when, when he rained down water, Noah was thinking in his mind, it's over now. But it wasn't over. God had another move. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. He didn't say, you are finished. If he would have said, you are finished, then all of the breath of the earth would, would stop. It would return to the life giver. God didn't say, you are finished. If he would have said, you are finished, the birds would stop singing. And the sun would cease to give his light. Thank God he said, it is finished. He said, it is finished. He didn't say, we are finished. It is impossible for Jesus to have said that because if he would have said we are finished, he would have stopped being God and we would be left to die forever. If he would have said we are finished, Satan would declare victory and he would have hoisted the trophy and all of the cheerleaders would be lost because Jesus would have declared we are finished. There would be no game, no rules, no victory. We would all be locked out if he would have said we are finished. Thank God he said it is finished. If you see, God could never be finished. No, never, 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 never. And because he can never be finished, he says, it is finished. Notice he didn't say, I am finished. If he would have said, I am finished, it would have presented a theological impossibility. If, if God can be defeated, what does that say about sin? If he would have declared in his last breath that I am finished, Satan would have a victory and the inmates would run the insane asylum. Thank God he didn't say I am finished or, or you are finished or we are finished. He said it is finished. What are you talking about? What is finished? Jesus said it is finished. The only option for him to say was it is finished. What is it? All right. It. It's a third person singular neuter pronoun. It. Hear, hear me clearly. It's third person meaning it's not I or we or you. It's third person. It's it. 
thank God for, for third person. It's not just third person, but it's singular. Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus is dying on the cross talking to a crowd. But when he says it is finished, he's talking to every living person as if they're the only one that he sees. He says it is finished. Jesus is taking whatever my it is and declaring that it is finished. It's me. It's personal. It's singular. It's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It is singular. Not only is it it's singular and third person, it's also gender neutral. Meaning that it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or if you're transgendered or just confused. It applies to you. It is finished. But most importantly, it is a pronoun. Why, why, why is that important? You see, a pronoun takes the place of a noun. I don't have to name what it is. Whatever it is, it takes the place of the noun. But what, what are you talking about? Anything I need to be finished, it is finished. If it's alcoholism, I can substitute it for me and for the noun and say, well, alcoholism is finished. If it's addiction, I can substitute it for me and say alcoholism is finished. If it's self-righteousness or self-hatred, I can declare what Jesus declared and say it is finished. Whatever your it is in your life, whether you know it or not, it has already been finished. Not only is it finished, you ask the question, why is it finished? Because Jesus fulfills it and he declares it. He, he, he fulfills it by, because he lived a perfect life. And he died a perfect sacrifice. So he has the authority, autonomy, and audacity to declare that it is finished. He has the authority to say it is finished. Not only does he have the authority, but because he says it. That means it is finished. What do you mean when he says he declares it? Where God is not a man that he should lie. Nor the son of man that he should change his mind. When God declares something, it is what he says it is. When Jesus said it is finished. While I was living a self-centered life. Screwing my life up. He says it is finished. That 90% of sin and wickedness and demons inside of you is finished. What you need is my spirit controlling that, that little bit that you have left. And when I control that, you can declare that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. When he said it is finished, I was an enemy. When he says it is finished, I was still a sinner. When he says it is finished, I was dead in my sins. I didn't ask him to do it. I didn't even want him to do it. But he said that it is finished. And if you still don't believe me, 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Not counting men's sins against them. It doesn't matter how much wickedness inside of you. You can make God the center of your joy. Because God made you the center of his. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? If God is the highest judge in the universe, there's no appellate court, there's no supreme court, there's no technicality that can take away his, it is finished. When he says it is finished, you have the supreme one on your side. Nobody can walk up to the judge and take the gavel out of his hand. 
We are saved because God made us the center of his joy. We can be restored not by punishment, not by, by fire insurance, but by love and complete restoration. The cross is God's promise that he doesn't hold your sin and all the crap you got in your life against you. Because he says it is finished, whatever it is in your life. He said it before you even asked him to do it. And if it pleased him to do it, then it's got to please him when we come to him. It's got to please him when we come to him. With our son. And say, God, you said that the demons inside of me is lesser than the potential in me.
I went back to school with, I, I, I've never folded clothes. It, it was in a big garbage bag. She said, why don't you fold it? I'm like, whatever, it's clean. I'm going to take it back. I threw it in my dresser drawer. When the day came when I was ready to wash my own clothes, I go to the store and buy the stuff. And I don't do what she did. I just threw it all in, put it on cold so my stuff don't shrink, and, and it was washed. But while the stuff was washing, I looked on the back of the detergent and I began to read. And when I began to look at it, my, my, my antennas began to go up because I'm like, I haven't been in church too long, but when I looked at this, I got inspired. And I looked at it and I saw something called surfactants. And I was a novice biology major at the time, so I'm like, what is surfactants? So, so I go to my biology professor and ask him, what's a surfactant? He said, that's a chemical that attaches itself to the dirt on the fabric. And it separates the dirt from the fabric so in the rinse cycle, the water can wash it away. And I'm like, okay, 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 it's surfactants. And I began to read all of these things, and I just got happy. And I went back to my mom, and I'm like, isn't this what you told me when I was a young boy, that God would wash me, even though I was dirty, even though I had all of this crap in my life? God would put me in his wash cycle and clean me up. And I've been reading some stuff, and I want you to explain it to me. And she said, well, baby, God's grace attaches itself to your sin. And his grace separates it from you, and his love washes it away. And when I began to look at that, I began to see that no matter how dirty I am, God has to put some stuff in my life. So when I finally come to my senses and let his love attach itself to me, his love and grace can wash it destroyed all of those people, then he took his only medicine. 
He did it for you and me. Is there one person who wants to connect to Jesus in a new and powerful way? Come, come stand next to me. I'm going to pray a special prayer just for you. Do you want Jesus in a new and different way? Yes, you, you thought that God was doing something on the cross because he had to do it. He had an internal smile on his face while he was doing it because he knew that if he could get inside of you, even though your heart is desperately wicked, those things, the same hands that you used to use for sin, you will never use for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, yes, we've been trying to find happiness in normal stuff. Yes, Lord. But Father, even that normal stuff doesn't bring happiness and it's not connected to you. Oh, Jesus. Lord, when we can't find it in normal stuff, we use abnormal stuff. Oh, Lord, yes, Lord. And you with us and our heart becomes even more wicked. But Father, you have the audacity to come to us like a magnet attracted to sin. And you're following us around like a, a small bubble trying to get our attention. And when we shoot you away, you keep on following us. We think about when you did it. Yes, why you did it in our hearts are amazed and we wonder, can you take away the Thank you, Lord. Father, you just need a small you. part of us. Because if you could ever get inside of us, your little bit is more potent than our sin. If we're at the bottom, get between us and the bottom. It might just be a small prayer. We ask that you go there because Revelation 3 says that you're knocking on a door. Any door in our lives that's open to you, you are knocking on that door. Father, we give you permission to go to the window of the to our point of need. Father, there are people here who need some stuff to be Thank you.